You're listening to the cycling podcast Femina, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Well, hello and welcome to the Cycling Podcast Feminine. My name is Rose Manley and I've got with me a crack team of cycling knowledge with the SD works of cycling <laughs> knowledge. Although I hope that you two are getting on a little bit better than uh, some of the SD works riders were getting on at the finish line of Strada Bianchi. But we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. I have got with me, of course, Orla Shenoui. Hello, Orla. Hello, hello. And Lizzie Banks. Hello, hello. Orla, I'm right behind you and I'm going to take you on the line. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, to make it, I'm going to make you think that I'm going to gift you that win, but absolutely not. It's elbows out to the line. <laughs> I'm just going to shove you into the barriers. Actually, that wasn't a nasty works move, was it? But I guess no, we'll come exactly. on to that in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> so much to talk about. Plenty of bad blood and potential uh, bad blood for us to talk about uh, on this uh, episode, uh, isn't there? It's all it's all fun and games in racing, isn't it? Um, but it's all uh, fair in racing, I think. Well, it's all fair in racing. But all give us your news roundup, and uh, then everyone else will know what we're talking about, won't they? Yeah. Um, let's freestyle us a little bit, shall we, with a few jazz interludes? Because yeah. There's a lot oh, yeah. to cover. So get those um, trumpets warmed up, ladies, because we're about to do our. <laughs> News roundup. Um, opening weekend got our Northern European season off to a bang of a start with two omloops and two podiums for Lorena Beavis and Marta Bastianelli. It was Lotta Kopecky who took the first win though at Omloop Het Newsblad with a second for Beavis and a third for Bastianelli. Beavis then following that up with her second win of the season at Omloop Bunhead Hacheland. Bastianelli moved up one spot as well with third going to Audrey Cordon Rigaud. Then Bastianelli continued moving up the podium from her third to second and then first at Lusaminde Dam with Maria Confalonieri in second and Vittoria Guizzini in third. Now, there is such a build-up to Strada Bianchi every year. Um, before, I guess, it had been as much because it was the first women's world tour race of the season. That's not the case anymore, but it still gave us the most drama of the year yet. I mean, I feel like we could have several little soap operas a few Netflix behind-the-scenes documentaries done in this one race alone. Um, most of it happening in the run-in to the line in Siena, it has to be said. As you referenced very topically at the top of the episode, Rose, SD Works um, traded blows between teammates and insults, if post-race reports are to be believed, with Damie Vollering pipping her teammate Lotte Capecchi to the line in a remarkable photo finish, it has to be said. Uh, no team plan apparently had been advised, devised rather, in advance, would have been advised. Um, and we will get to that in a moment. But also with the race with Kristen Faulkner, originally finishing in third after a dramatic solo escape and a bit of argy-bargy by the barriers, as Jamie Vollering, as Lizzie referred to. But her podium was subsequently scrapped because she was wearing a glucose monitoring device, um, our very own Super Sapiens, which is banned during racing. So even though... Hers wasn't collecting data at the time. The UCI adopted a strict liability approach and her third place was taken instead by Cecily Uttrup Ludwig. Um, on to the Ronde van Drenthe, where Lorena Vivas took a third straight title. 
with Suzanne Anderson of Uno X in second and Micah Vanderdown of Canyon Shram in third. Then we had Danilith Nokera Cursa, which saw a repeat of the omelette Het Newsblad podium, Kopecky, Vivas and Bastianelli all taking one, two, three. Um, that makes Kopecky's strike rate this year unmatched. She's only raced three times this season, but has two wins and a second place. That second, of course, being the almost first Estrada. But this win was especially meaningful, coming as it did just days after her brother Seth died, suddenly at the age of 29. A remarkable feat to even take to the start line for Lotto. We'll discuss that in a little bit. Um, even more impressive to finish with a win. We, of course, send all of our love and best wishes to the Kopecky family and all of Sepp's loved ones. Uh, it must be an incredibly, incredibly difficult time for them. Um, on to Trofeo Alfredo Bind then where we saw a wonderfully daring solo attack payoff for Sheeran Van Anroy of Trek Segafredo and off of the cycling podcast Femina from last month. Um, she um, told us in that chat, didn't she, she's been held back from racing essentially by team management so she'd have enough time to recover from the cross season that ran straight from last year's road season. A clever and very healthy team approach that we applauded at the time and it's already paid off because this was her first World Tour win of her career and a 1-2 for Trek Segafredo with Elisa Balsamo finishing in second and Vittoria Guazzini of FTJ Suez taking her second podium of the year to finish in third. Now, in other news, the women's uh, tour, the OG of the properly organised, properly funded, properly supported women's stage races has been hit with a huge financial setback and it is now crowdfunding, or rather the organisers are crowdfunding Sweet Spot to try to make sure it goes ahead this year. Um, they say they are some £500,000 short, half a million short. And that's after the race was already cut from six days to five. So they are exploring new partner deals. So it doesn't all come down to crowdfunding, but it is a sad day that we've even come to this. Um, and Lizzie, we, or is it fair to say you, accosted the race director of the Women's Tour. Do you remember? <laughs> After Ruler we Live keeping, I thought we were keeping that secret. Year. I did. I did indeed. Across. It was the route director, wasn't it? Yeah, route the route director. director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is at, the yeah. money is actually that their crowdfunding is just to get more bodyguards to keep Lizzie away from the organisation <laughs> of the race. You'll need an awful lot more That's than half a bill. million for that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was really, I thought, do you know what? I took such heart from that conversation just to explain. Um, we were at Ruler Live in London at the end of last year and we actually, all went for drinks actually, afterwards. Well, we were at the after party. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we were the after party. Let's yeah, be totally honest. Uh, when drinks were flowing and opinions were fueled, and we were chatting to the route director of uh, the women's tour, and Lizzie, like I just loved actually his reaction as well to what you were saying in terms of what kind of a route we should be seeing and how much more dynamic it could be made, and but but said with all the respect that comes from someone who loves the race and who knows as you do more than anyone just what a game changer it's been in professional women's stage racing so I find it really really desperately sad to see it in this situation right now yeah I agree completely and it's you know it's obviously a part of the economic the worldwide economic state which is heightened in the UK um, and as you mentioned the race going down from six days to five there are actually more costs for the organizers at the moment um, with six day plus races because they are now able to have seven riders, which means an extra hotel room for every single team. Uh, and if you add that up, that is a huge amount of extra cost for the organizers. Um, and just things like 
petrol costs a lot more. Um, Skoda, who have sponsored the race for a very long time and no longer sponsoring the race. So the race organizers are having to fund their own cars for the race. Um, so yeah, it's it will be... I really hope that this race can be saved because it has been instrumental in paving the way for what the professionalization of women's races should look like. Um, it's also a great, great race. And one of, you know, is the only, oh no, it's, well, there's two women's world tour races in the UK, of course, Ride London as well. But um, it's just a huge race for activating the local people. There are so many hundreds of thousands of people on the roadside school kids on the roadside so many people that are inspired by this race um i really hope that it can be saved and that a commercial partner can be found as well as you know in addition crowdfunding can can help to uh yeah bridge that gap in funding that we currently have for me it's just so i mean we get i think a lot of lip service paid to women's sport and women's cycling and uh, and then something like this happens, and I really hope that some of those uh, brands and people like to who like to you know put out a post on International Women's Day uh, about how much you know support they have for women, how how pro equality they are. I hope that one of those brands can kind of put their step money where their mouth is. Yeah, a fantastic platform, and it, and you know supporting this race really. Uh, does make a difference, as you say, Lizzie. Not you know, not just to uh, female athletes being given a professional race that has always shown so much respect for them, um, uh, but also, like you said, about having those children on the roadside. I mean, they have full you know full schools go oh, out on the roadside. It's roadside. amazing. But I don't see that at any incredible. other race. No, no, no. I think across the peloton, across the board, everybody says that the the roadside support. Uh, the women's tour is, you know, unrivaled, unmatched, you know, apart from something like the world championships. Otherwise, it's just out and out the best of any race. Okay, okay, from now we have the women's tour de France. But, you know, before that, really, the women's tour was absolutely setting the example of what it should be. And, and the organisation is so good at activating the public, at getting those people to come out on the road and see it. Um, and it was just an amazing thing to be a part of. You ride past and there's just crowds of kids screaming and screaming and they're so excited to see you. So you know, they have no idea who you are, but they're so excited to see you go past and um, the motorbikes and the, all the cars and everything. And it's, yes, it's a great race. So fingers crossed that that it can be saved. It's funny there, Lizzie, that you mentioned the Tour de France fan because uh, for me, it is a little bit worrying, you know. The Tour de France fan came along, and it was a, it, and it's fantastic. And we all, and it, it's whether we wanted one or or not. Now that we have it, it it's amazing um, and kind of unparalleled. But um, it's worrying for me that it isn't a case of like uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. It's it concerns me that you can have these big races coming coming along, and obviously there's loads of other factors in it. Um, but I was hoping that having a women's Tour de France would then create more attention on these other races would be there was more support uh, more people getting behind financially um, other races on the calendar um, but obviously you know there's so many other factors I think I think it has though I think it has in general but because of Britain's specific economical situation um, you know in light of the wider global economic situation it has made it 
particularly difficult for those British races. Um, so I think that overall, actually, that that Tour de France effect has been incredibly positive, and we're just seeing so many more races that were only men's races wanting to have a women's race as well. But because of the specific situation with the UK and Brexit and everything else, um, I think that impact has just been so much stronger than the, you know, than the opposing positive impact of the Tour de France effect. Do you know what I was thinking, Lizzie, as you were talking and you're both talking about the incredible crowds that we see in the side of the road and how that has been until the Tour de France fam unmatched in women's uh, racing. And especially the little kids in their in their full school uniforms, entire schools up by the side of the road, girls in particular. You think that actually at a time when the UK is really struggling with its global image, certainly its European image. This is incredible PR for the country. You know, when you see that from the outside of the UK and you see the support that it gives to women's racing, it is such positivity and such joy. And you would think maybe a savvy, patriotically minded, big money sponsor might come in and think, there's something to be made out of this. There's something I could get off the back of this. And it's, you know... A rare piece, a rare image, I think, at the minute of um, things that are fantastic about the UK and their support of bike racing is one of those things. So, you know, maybe if anyone's listening and you've got a half a mind on PR as well as a decent budget and you want to, you know, do your bit, then have a think about it. Anyway, I should say as well, it's not just the women's racing that's suffering, is it? We've had two um, con- men's continental teams go. We've got the National Tour Series that's been suspended for this year as well, also um, organised by Sweet Spot. It is a a, a cross-the-board situation right now. But let's keep everything crossed, pretzel-like, for the saving of the uh, Women's Tour. Um, One final bit of news that I have, but that doesn't mean it's complete, Lizzie, because I expect you to come and plug my (laughs) gaps. Thank you. Um, Ellen Van Dyke has announced she's having a baby with um, Trek deciding not to fill her temporary gap in the roster. So the current world time trial champion will sit out. She'll take her rainbow bands into the nursery for 2023 and plans to come back in 2024. You've got it all, Ola. Woo-hoo! <laughs> That's teamwork. Proper That's teamwork. SD teamwork. SD teamworks. <laughs> actually, I should mention that not only are we calling ourselves the SD works of the cycling podcast, we are actually dressed in the same uniform yes. today. We've got yeah, matching yeah. uniforms. And, you know, I came on, I saw that you two were wearing matching uniforms. I went, I went, this is how dedicated I am to our team spirit. I went to change before we started recording so that we would all be wearing pretty much the same thing. So. I should explain for anyone who's listening and not watching, um, we are, we've <laughs> we all got stripes no on our jumpers. <laughs> we, have, yeah. we have rainbow we've stripes on, which is not to say we have all, we're all wearing a, uh, a cycling rainbow jersey. Cycling kit. <laughs> no. No, but I feel like we've got the home kit, the away kit, and the training kit between the three of us. So, um, yeah, T- team, 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 are in sync today. Hands in, one, two, three, woo! <laughs> it's Lizzie from the future here, bringing you a flash news roundup from Classic Brugge de Panna, which hadn't happened at the time of recording. Lorena Vibas took third place, finding herself on the podium for the eighth time out of ten starts this season in a tight sprint between her and Elisa Balsamo of Trek Segafredo, who took second place. Pfeiffer Georgie of Team DSM won the race solo for her first World Tour win 
attacking from a small group with 7k to go after the race was absolutely decimated in the crosswind section of Demuran. We managed to get a quick word with Pfeiffer Georgie right after the finish, so here she is. Yeah, this one's really special to get my first ever board saw victory. Testament to how well we rode as a team together today. We wanted to make the race hard and yeah, we did that from early on, trying to split it in the crosswinds. Yeah, make the group smaller and yeah, then me and Megan, yeah, just kept fighting to try and get the odds more in our favour because we win a lot of fast girls and she set me up perfectly for my attack. And from then on, it was just head down, going as hard as I could to the line. Yeah, my DF was shouting in my ear. I was in a lot of pain and I didn't really believe that I was going to win until maybe 300 metres to go. Unexpected and yeah, I'm so happy to take this win. Um, and it gives me a lot of confidence going into the rest of the classics. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat or drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimise your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalised analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, title sponsors of the cycling podcast. Now, Strada Bianchi is pretty much the closest the road peloton will get to gravel racing in a normal season. But if you want to find out more about what it takes to become a gravel racing champion, head over to supersapiens.com. They have a blog there by Lauren de Crescenzo, who is a former champion of Unbound and also came pretty close to becoming the US national champion on the road last year. She has such an interesting story. It's well worth a read. And she takes us back to 2016 when a horrific bike crash left her with a severe traumatic brain injury. She thought that she would never get back on a bike again. In her blog, she outlined some of the physical and mental challenges that she had to overcome to get back to racing at the very top levels. And she tells us a little bit more about Super Sapien's system of continuous glucose monitoring and how it is helping her to take control of her fueling and ensure that she has all the energy she needs to compete at the very highest level. So if you want to read that, or you want to find out more about Super Sapiens, then head to supersapiens.com. Well, we've been teasing it all episode, haven't we? Uh, talking about the dynamics between uh, Lotta Capecchi and Demi Vollering towards the line at the very finish of uh, Strada Bianchi. Now, casting your minds back, uh, basically we had a, a two-up uh, sprint for the line. They just caught Kristen Faulkner uh, on the run into the Piazza del Campo. Um, and it was coming down to two SD Works riders. And really, it's everything we dreamed of. From the last episode, we were complaining about the Elisa Longo-Borghini and Guy Riolini situation at the UAE Tour, where the team order said uh, to Guy Riolini that it had to give, be given to gifted. I mean, we when we say gifted, we don't, obviously it's earned by both riders, but uh, gifted by to Elisa Longo-Borghini. And lo and behold, this episode, we've got just out and out, no team orders, Demi Vollering and Lottie Kopecky were fighting it out, weren't they, at the finish, uh, Lizzie? But I know that from the regular pod, you've already talked about this finish uh, and you were suggesting that maybe Demi Vollering probably was going into it thinking that she was going to be given the win. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just I was smiling because it was just such it was such a great finish. It was so it was so chaotic. And now that we can kind of look back on it with a little bit of hindsight and a bit of time afterwards and really having had time now to 
to read all of the interviews about exactly what was said or, you know, hypothetically said on the finish line immediately after the finish line and in the interviews afterwards. Um, I think I said on the regular podcast that I felt that Demi Vollering thought that she was going to be gifted, in inverted commas, this win by Lotta Kopecky. And it seems that that, you know, having read everything afterwards, that that really was the case. You know, she she thought that, well, she got to the top of the um, Santa Catarina climb first and that meant that she'd effectively won the race. And it was only really just coming into the last corner that Lotta came around her. She thought, well, I think she's leading me out. And then she realised, oh, wait, no, she's really going for it here. Um, and Demi really had to give everything to come around her at the finish. Lotta had this kind of wry smile on her face, like, oh, wasn't that fun? Sprint for the town sign and Demi Vollering kind of gasping, mouth open. What the blimmin' heck just happened? Um, and it was but reported... She might have said something a bit stronger than blimmin' it. Yeah, well, it was reported, as you mentioned earlier, Orla, that she said um, a, a Dutch word that I won't repeat on the podcast that, you know, a Dutch expletive, basically, after she'd after she'd crossed the line. Immediately she said this to her soigneur. And there seemed to be quite some tension as the cameras were <laughs> watching these two and they were stood a good few metres apart from each other. No hugs, no words, um, neither of them knowing who'd actually won the race because it was so tight across the line. And uh, it was only afterwards when Demi Vollering was being interviewed by Eurosport GCN that she was told that she had actually won the race and she she went... Oh, well, that's nice. And it was a bit of an, you know, it's quite, it's quite an odd way, odd thing to say. And then, in, you know, in the tent afterwards, she she reported in the press conference that, that Lotta Kopecky came in and said, you know, I'm really happy for you. I'm really happy that you've won the race. Um, and at that point, uh, she said that they were, you know, it was all fine between them and they were both very happy. So I do feel that if it had been the other way around, if Vollering hadn't won, then there would have been quite some tensions in the team. Um, but because she did end up winning, and of course Lotta Kopecky had already got the win at Newsblad the week before, um, that will actually be, you know, it's one all, all should be fine in, in you know, the best team in the world. I mean, seen, it seemed that Debbie Vollering was pretty shaken by it to me. Yeah. I mean, obviously she is, she can be quite emotional uh, when she, she wins. But she was, she did seem to be very shell-shocked when she's doing the interviews, even on the podium, um, a bit kind of it she seemed like everything that she thought was going to happen had been kind of shaken up and obviously Lossi Kopecky is a a new rider to the the team and Demi Vollering has been um oh I mean obviously she was alongside Anna van der Breggen who is you know the was the top dog but Demi Vollering has always had kind of top billing while she's been at SD Works um and having Lossi Kopecky coming in and being on such um a fine form uh where do you think that leaves Demi Vollering Ola? Um, I think we'll all be watching really closely, obviously, over the next couple of races to see whether they can actually support each other. Um, she is where it leaves her is the winner of Strada Bianca. You know, there's no question whatsoever well, that yeah. she was gifted <laughs> that by Lotta Kopecky, who, who is on flying form. So it goes to show that she is the match and better of anyone in the world right now. But what I want to say about that is I just bloody loved it. I loved it. I oh, love yeah. that kind of just battle for the line and I and I have to say I have less than zero time for the moral outrage afterwards I'm sorry people getting angry about bike riders wanting to win one of the biggest bike races in the world and then holding Demi Vollering to account for 
for expressing her fury and her anger in the rush of adrenaline and saying in some way she should be thinking about whether she's a role model to people watching or not. I'm sorry. She's not paid to be a role model. If, if a top athlete can be a role model on top of winning, fantastic. If they can be a role model by winning and their training and their dedication and their approach to the race, fantastic. Should they be teaching our children what words to say and how to behave? No, that's up to us. <laughs> you know, and I just think, I well, do it, wonder. You know, in a way, Demi has taught everyone um, a bit more. Well, yeah, Dutch, that's true. That's true. But you know, I do, I like, I hate. <laughs> I know what's saying the bunch now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hate to question this, but I do question it. And I wonder if the moral outcry would have been so immediate and so vociferous if it was two men. And whether we expect our women to be a little bit more ladylike. And if we do, I'm sorry, sawed off and watch Chidley Winks because this is elite sport. And if they don't want to win that badly, they're not going to win. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You know what? My my view on it is that she she was obviously really shocked, like you say, because I think, you know, she thought what I thought, which is that basically in, in these kind of classic races, Lotta Kopecky is generally probably more likely to win. And Demi Vollering does a hell of a lot of work to help Lotta Kopecky win in these types of races. Um, and when it comes to the races in the mountains in which Vollering is more likely to win, Kopecky either isn't there to help because she's not in the selection or you know like we saw in the Tour de France there was basically a team that was helping Vollering and then Kopecky was kind of doing her own thing you know kind of trying to go for the green jersey and then you know eventually she ended up crashing out so I felt like Vollering gives so much to help Kopecky in these races that this was a moment when they were coming to the line together and I just made the assumption yeah. that it, it would be given to her um, and so I, I would say I wasn't outraged, but I was quite surprised. Um, and and I think By that Bollering felt the same way. Yeah. Okay. And obviously a lot more strongly. She obviously felt the whole way up there, you know, I'm going to get this. I got to the top first. I'm going to get this. And suddenly when everything that you believe and it's such a high prize gets ripped out from under your feet, you know, it's going to take a moment and it's a really, really hell of a big prize, you know, winning Stradabianchi. So, and you don't even know if it's been ripped out from under your feet or not because you actually don't even know yeah. who won. So, you know, those moments after the finish line, you're just, you're trying to gather yourself and compose, compose yourself and work out what the hell's happened. But you're doing that in front of the eyes of the world. Yeah. And so all of these, all of these, you know, initial immediate reactions are looked upon with a microscope um, but it always, you know, you've always got emotions after the race, whatever happens. <laughs> Obviously, those emotions were very, very high and quite unexpected. But actually, in the end of the day, 
after they'd worked out who'd won, they worked everything out between them and everything was fine. You know, the party line with SD Works was that, you know, it was just post-race emotions and everything was fine in the team. And I do actually think that that is the case. I do think that that's the case. And I do think that they will work together very well going forward. I don't think that there will be this, you know, we want to make it really exciting. I don't, but I don't think there will be this, you know, very strong inter-team rivalry where they're trying to kill each other for every position. There also is, the I mean, Estrada Bianchi is also a little bit rare in that they are kind of on a level pegging in terms of chance to win. There. Yeah, exactly. But there, aren't that, there really aren't that many races where it isn't quite clear cut that it's it's Warren or Capecchi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder as well, Lizzie, what you think about the fact that SC Works hadn't devised a plan for that particular scenario. And I understand that that scenario is incredibly rare and probably highly unlikely at the start of the race. Um, and and I'm thinking this because at the time, whenever Anna van der Brecha essentially said, yeah, we didn't we didn't have a plan for who was going to win in that mm. situation. Is it realistic at any stage going up that final climb? Is it realistic coming to that final corner for anyone in a team car to say at that stage, by the way, this is who's going to get well, the win? Because then that surely is disruptive as well. So I actually wonder what they could have done other than saying you know, laying out every single possible scenario in advance. Maybe, you know, I I think I kind of blame the team management for any misunderstanding, but I'm wondering whether that was a little bit harsh even. Well, I think that, I think I said this in the regular pod, but I think it's highly unlikely that there would have been radio signal between the team car and and Kopecky and Vollering at the time, because there has to be at least a minute between groups in order for a team car to slot in. Um, And, you know, up until the the, the final climb, you had... Um, Kopecky and Vollering oh sorry you had you had uh, Kristen Faulkner in the front and then Kopecky and Vollering and then there was another group with Uttrup Ludwig Van Vluten and then there was another group behind with Shabby and, uh, and others other riders in so there were so many groups with with short distances in between which wouldn't have allowed the car to come in that means that it's quite likely and especially there's you know there's so many hills going up and down between um you know in in the last sort of like four or five kilometers it's quite likely that the signal from the team car wouldn't have been getting through to the riders so even if the team had been able to say um fight it out between yourselves or whatever um I don't know whether that signal would have got through. So uh, I think that's probably the most likely scenario. We haven't heard exactly for anything from the team, but I think that is the most likely scenario. I, from a personal point of view, I really hope they don't uh, in the future feel like they need to come up with every yeah. scenario to, to, and you know come up with a plan of who should win. Because, it, I mean, it was, as a spectator, it was just yeah. fantastic. Uh, watching, loved wasn't it. it. Loved Lottering it. Probably didn't didn't feel like that. But, but she won um, for, so. for us on the outside. <laughs> yeah, she Maybe still won. She still won. actually got um, it. You know. I mean, we should say also their teamwork up until that uh, oh, that very final run in was absolutely perfect. I mean, we saw um, Bollering go off first, and then on Latolfe, uh, Kopecky kind of uh, bridging across. And you know, there could be a, a question about whether you should bridge across to your teammate but I mean it was obvious that Vorring was going to be brought back um, wasn't it um, but we what we haven't really mentioned is the fact that Kristen the, you know the reason they had such great teamwork is they were trying to get across to Kristen Faulkner who had a huge advantage um, on absolutely uh, everyone it was kind of a remarkable performance because we haven't uh, seen yeah. uh, too much of her since it, since halfway through last year um, have we but uh, I mean Ola do you think that people were kind of uh, perhaps undermining Kristen Faulkner. Maybe they didn't. Two minutes think, with 20 to go. Maybe. She had two minutes. 
20 they didn't ago. think that she was as powerful as she was. What was your kind of read on that? Yeah, I guess it's one of the it's one of those whereby she wasn't one of the pre-race top favourites. And so everyone's probably thinking, well, we'll bring her back as a collective rather than actually taking any responsibility for it. And then by the time she was such a danger, only a select few can get involved in that mix anyway. Um, so I, I, I would hesitate to say that someone who's proven themselves to be as strong and as good a rider as Kristen Faulkner would be underestimated, but there are only so many attacks that mm. you can ch- chase down individually and as a team, you know? And, and I guess with that one, you would think, well, probably we'll manage to bring her back. And then they very, very, very almost didn't. And I and full credit to Kristen Faulkner for that ride. I think it was not only bold and daring, it was magnificent to watch. And I really thought coming into Siena, I thought, you know what? She could still do this. And the commentators were calling her being caught and they were right, obviously, in the end. They're calling her being caught before I was certain that that would indeed be the case, you know. And maybe if Damie and Lotta had realised that they were working at different purposes, Kristen might have had a chance in the end. You never know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and the thing is, true. she was only caught by the SD Works duo. She wasn't yeah, caught yeah, yeah, by, by anyone else. Ludwig, no. Ludwig and all of, you know, Nivea Odoma, all of the others. So, you know, in essence, most of most of the riders did leave it too late because you know it was only the the two people from SD Works that actually caught that and everybody else okay well, we're going to discuss this in a moment um Utra Ludwig actually eventually ended up on the podium which yeah. we'll discuss in a moment because that's another little twist um but yeah everybody else did leave it too late she was she was the rider in front of them and I really hope given what we're about to discuss in that disqualification I do hope that Kristen Faulkner takes and I'm sure she will she's an intelligent woman I think she'll take an awful lot of solace from that ride mm-hmm. and confidence so for the season ahead. Because as you say, you know, it wasn't a bunch of nobodies trying to bring her back in the end. You know, Annemiek van Vleuten was one of the many riders who couldn't catch her. That's, I mean, it's bound to obviously alert everyone else as to her danger. But like I said before, if you weren't aware of her danger, I'd be surprised anyway. But it's going to give her a huge amount of confidence as to what she can actually do because um, she really... If she'd won it, I don't think anyone would have been massively surprised given how the race had panned out. Certainly, in terms of performance, she deserved that third place. Um, so, yeah, so I hope she takes a lot of positives from that race, despite everything that's happened since. Yeah, I mean, uh, even in trying to chase and bring her back, people kind of hit, like, we saw Cecily Ludwig pretty much hit a wall, just trying to chase the people who were chasing uh, Kristen Faulkner. Now, we're kind of skipping around the subject a little bit, but... Um, it should be said that Kristen Faulkner uh, has been disqualified uh, from Strada Bianchi um, because she was spotted with a continuous, what we know now is a continuous glucose monitor uh, on her arm. Um, obviously, Kristen Faulkner has said that she, no data was being uh, taken from it at the time, but the UCI uh, rules state that um, you, you can't be wearing them. You, you can't have anything that is taking uh, data during... Um, uh, the race, uh, Lizzie. What, what's kind of your uh, view view on that? I mean, it is kind of one of those things. It's a bit of an odd rule, isn't it? Um, but uh, it, you know, rules are rules. Uh, yeah. And in cycling, there are a lot of rules. Yeah, yeah. In cycling, there are a lot of rules, and some of them are stupid. Um, but at the end of the day, they're rules, and we we have to adhere to them. So, the the twist to this story is that Kristen Faulkner was a, a late addition to the squad. Um, and she was a replacement for Alex Manley, who had been unwell. She had recently put a, a, another continuous glucose monitor sensor on her arm, and they're very expensive, um, so she didn't want to to take it off. She said that she 
she she put a statement out to the press after her disqualification. She said that she asked a trusted member of staff uh, whether it was okay to have it on her arm if she had stopped recording the data. Um, the staff member thought that that was okay, uh, so she rode with it. So she'd obviously she obviously thought about this ahead of time, and she believed that what she was doing was correct. At least that's what she said to the press anyway. Um, but you know. I can't think of a situation where I've seen somebody else wearing one in a race and I, yes, I guess the rule is slightly ambiguous, but at the end of the day, if you've got a monitor there, there is the potential to record data and it's not allowed in the race, whether or not that's right or wrong, that's a completely different debate. The rule says that you cannot have it. Um, and of course, people picked up on this during the race. You could see the little round sensor on her arm um, and it took the UCI a week to investigate it. She sent all of the data to the UCI uh, and it resulted in her disqualification from the race. Um, and I mean, it is one of those things that, I mean, you mentioned that, uh, Lizzie, that um, obviously you could see it on the cameras, but obviously if she was just in the bunch, if she actually wasn't going yeah, you'd for never the have win, seen it. the chances are that you'd never have seen mm -hmm. it and uh, she wouldn't have been uh, disqualified. So it's purely from seeing the television pictures of her way out in front and it being quite clear mm -hmm. that it, it kind of got brought up um, at all. I think that it's really the only decision that the UCI could have given. I think if they hadn't have disqualified her there would have been a lot of talk about uh you know perhaps if it was a men's race they would have got disqualified and if it was a women's race perhaps they were being more lenient i do think that it's the only thing that they could do in the eye of the uci law um it is it is sad though it is a, it is sad and it is a shame and i still think that as far as she's concerned and i think as far as the rest of us are concerned really she was still third at strada bianca she was still on the podium it didn't affect her race yeah, I do think it's really sad. I agree with you, Lizzie, 100%. Rules are rules and that's just what they are. There, there can't be a black, there can't be a grey rather. It has to be black or white. One thing that I find really interesting about this in particular was the discussion it created on social media as to the point of the rules. Um, and lots of people saying how it was to try to slow down the advance towards a robotic uh, version of cycling, essentially, where... where uh, Riders are just going on power and data and all the rest of it. I think that's I think that's BS really, and I and I don't think we can or should slow that down. I do think it's much more likely to be because of the needle element, because you've got to pierce your skin with it, and I, and it's really hard to argue against an ethos, certainly in cycling, but I would I would say in any sport whereby the introduction of needles is fought. Um, so on that level, I would say, unfortunate as it is, and certainly in terms of the um the impact on racing, it would seem like a nonsensical ban to have in place. However, if it's because of the no needle policy, you've like you've got to just see that that's that that's a good thing. Um I don't think we should be doing anything really because to well I just think it's a nonsensical argument to say that that riders are becoming more and more um uh robotic really because i think yeah i think it's so disrespectful to to riding and racing and what it involves you know it's not a case of following your data and your power and then flicking a switch and that does the pedaling for you you know i just i think i it's... mean if you're actually watching the racing you'll realize that that's totally yeah, yeah exactly like, exactly you know, because what races you know when people are attacking and going so deep you're not you know you never look at the power meter you're yeah. not looking at the power meter mm. and I, there's always you know it, it sparks this debate about whether or not we should have power and i just think that 
I don't actually think it changes yeah, the race. Yeah. I don't think it changes the race at all. Like, you're when still do you look your at your power meter when you're on a you're on a race winning attack? <laughs> it's just rubbish. Because I tell you what, I could be given all of my power data in the world, and I'd still be rubbish in a bike race. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the cycling podcast Femina is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. To mark the arrival of the Spring Classics. Science and Sport are running a Strava Challenge, the SIS Classic 100 Challenge. The idea is to ride 100 kilometres between now and March 31st. Everyone who completes the challenge will get 20% off SIS products at scienceinsport.com. So get fueled up on your Science and Sport products, get out on your bike and get riding, because one lucky winner will also get the chance to watch the finish of Paris-Roubaix right there in the velodrome and let me tell you there is no experience like that if you want more information there's a link to the sis classic 100 challenge in our show notes see that for full terms and conditions as well and don't forget while you're there to join the science in sport global cycle club on strava one rider who's already having a phenomenal spring is puck peterser coming off of an outstanding cyclocross season the phoenix to koenig rider climbed and raced with the very very best in strada bianchi and finished fifth in what was her very very first ever women's world tour race i caught up with puck to find out a little bit more about her well uh, congratulations puck on a fantastic strada bianchi were you were you expecting that kind of performance uh, a top five finish yeah, I didn't really know what to expect. I knew I had good legs and the team said that my positioning was good. I should uh, should be able to ride a good race. But yeah, I didn't know if that was really the case, of course, because I didn't know what the, you know, how good the others were. But uh, yeah, it was really cool to really be in a position to uh, to battle it out. Seeing you uh, your YouTube video, which I absolutely loved, you doing the recon on uh, the Strada Bianchi roads. Was that like the first you'd done those roads before? Yeah, I've never been there. So it was a whole new experience for me. But I mean, obviously, that's kind of as close to mountain biking or, or cyclocross as, as pretty much the road season ever gets, right? Yeah, I think so. And also the, the climbs weren't that long. L- lots of climbing still, but yeah, everything was uh, not really big mountains or something. So that also suits me, I think, especially as a mountain biker, where the climbs are mostly like maximum uh, four minutes long. So uh, it was a good race to pick, I think. Yeah. Did you did you kind of come to any uh, big conclusions when you were racing it about, you know, how different road racing is to, you know, what you normally uh, are an expert in? Yeah. And I'm adapted to just going full gas for uh, one hour, one and a half hours. And this was really just uh, being patient, especially in the beginning uh, and waiting till uh, the race really exploded. My job was to just position well and wait for the others to, to do something because otherwise uh, I might burn my uh, my matches too early. So uh, yeah, luckily it, uh, it worked out, but I could really feel the the yeah the length of the race that really, that really got me. And also, yeah, the first half of the race wasn't that intensive than uh, yeah I'm used to but I have to say I mean you said that you were kind of like trying to save your energy and but you, were, you we saw you a lot on the on the TV cameras like were you just kind of wanting to race your own race as someone who's kind of a bit more new to to road racing yeah I thought if I, I'm just in the front then you also yeah, when there are crashes happening or when there's a break going you're always there of course and yeah if you go in especially if you go to the gravel sector a bit more in the back, you have to make up for it if they really uh, push the pace. So I'd rather yeah, be in the front and be be a bit more safe. Yeah, it costs a bit more energy, I think, but uh, it's helped me a lot with yeah being 
in a position when it mattered because then at the end of the race when you also had to be in the front yeah all the, all, i had had been there the whole day so <laughs> i was still there uh yeah when the others uh, came through as well do you think you've got a bit more uh, advantage in a way that I, sometimes when you know watch races people seem so scared of you know the likes of Annemiek van Floyten and Demi Vollering and almost kind of scared to do anything that they're not doing do you think with your background that you can you you have a bit more confidence just to to do your own thing you know you don't have that kind of sense of awe and fear of 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 those the strongest riders in the peloton yeah i think i learned it through through a race a bit it was like i said before my job to just follow what they did from that point of view i did a bit the same as uh, the others i think just uh, follow uh, anatomy and then following but i think if i race again i'd maybe do uh, more of my own but yeah it was really just looking where i was standing so it was difficult to really make my own, uh, own tactic but you seem to have so much did you enjoy it because you seem to have so much fun on your bike normally yeah that was really fun for sure <laughs> i did i did love that bit in the uh recon video that you did where you got stopped by the police about you know three four times and still managed to pull a wheelie <laughs> coming into the <laughs> of sienna um, but is it just so is it important for you just to love what you're doing is that kind of your motivation for what whether you do a road race or mountain bike or cyclocross or or is there a kind of a greater plan and ambition behind the choices you make well i think that as long as i as i have fun on the bike i'm most relaxed and that also helps of course with uh with same energy a bit if you're think too uh too nervous before uh like the days before a race it's it's can really get you on race day that's you might have yeah already have uh, less energy but also yeah just as long as i have fun in training and during recalls and during races i think it will go best uh yeah the results will follow it themselves so that's uh i think for me the the best tactic to be uh, relaxed about it is that because you think nerves kind of take away take away your energy is that your experience in the past yeah yeah i think so if you're yeah so focused on something it can really uh, affect you in the race i think that's i think also always why big championships are always different you always see someone coming through that you wouldn't expect and someone who's normally really good just like uh yeah maybe underperform mm. i think a lot of that has to do with uh with the nurse yeah and and how do you do you have to i know you say you, you know having fun kind of counteracts that but do is that like a conscious thing that you have to try and tell yourself or you know you just it comes naturally to you well luckily for me it comes uh, <laughs> quite natural uh <laughs> For me, it works. So, uh, yeah, that's why uh, yeah, I think for me, it's the best tactic. And we're seeing at the moment so many cyclocross riders crossing over onto the road and doing so well, like Shirin Van Anroy, you know, getting the wind at Trofeo uh, Binder um, last yeah. weekend. Obviously, you know, Mariana Voss has always dominated on both, but it seems like right now there's a generation of cyclocross riders coming in and, and just immediately doing well on the road. What do you think that's to do with? Is it just the, the particular riders or is it something about the way the season is managed now? I don't know. It's a question lots of people have asked us, like uh, Shirin Fem and me, for like how come, yeah, especially in cyclocross, we were just above everyone else last mm. season. I really don't know it. I only know yeah, it's really cool to see, like especially also Shirin to show uh, what she's got in uh, in Binda, and it all uh, also puts the yeah, the cyclocross in perspective of how competitive cyclocross is nowadays. Yeah, if it's just maybe a coincidence that we're all three just that good, or uh, yeah, I uh, I don't know. <laughs> is it? Does it make it tempting for you? You know, seeing how well Shirin is 
is doing, um, is it tempting for you to cross over into road at all? Or, you know, you, you just want to stick with a mountain biking, cyclocross? Yeah, for sure. It's tempting, especially after Skrade, you know, when it goes so well. It's more fun, of course, when uh, when the performance is really good. But yeah, I know what my goals are. And now that out bike season is starting a bit and the races are coming, it's a good motivation to keep going. Yeah, I've been mountain biking for the past, past few years. And uh, yeah, I just really like it. And then, yeah, you really have to invest in that, in your technique and everything. So it's better to do that when you're still uh, still young. And I think the road therefore can, uh, can wait a bit, luckily. And then I'll see uh, how it goes in the future maybe. But for now, my goals are all set on the, on the mountain bike. And what's the th- what is it that about mountain biking that you love? And what what is it about road uh, racing that, that you've enjoyed that you, you might consider coming back to it? In the mountain bike, I really like, just like in cyclocross, it's really d- diverse and you can just go all out there's a way less tactic of course you have to see it you don't start too hard but normally it's just the strongest one wins and then in mountain bike it's also really important to have like the technique to go fast in the downhills as well and on the road it's more the the big tactic i think which makes it also tempting to try out to really play with the tactics and what works what doesn't work that's yeah like all new for me whereas mountain biking is just going full gas you don't really have to have to think about it but yeah the fun thing is the, the off-road part i think <laughs> is there a race uh, i'm thinking i mean there must be a, a road race that you kind of fancy your chances in something like paris roubaix i imagine would be a great fit for a rider like you oh i don't know <laughs> <laughs> not any pressure on your car so but <laughs> i i wouldn't know but uh, yeah it would be really cool to to ride that one there uh, one day of course well i'm sure there's like most of the women's peloton will be just really relieved that you're not going to be doing too many more road races this year and you're practicing <laughs> a mountain biking Give everyone, <laughs> you're giving everyone uh, a few years of of, of uh, rest anyway yeah, yeah we'll give them some time then uh, in a few years uh, they uh, yeah maybe they've caught up that was puck peterser of fenix to kerning now we just want to make listeners aware that in this next section we will be discussing bereavement and personal experiences of grief. Now, we've already talked a little bit about Lossie Kopecky's uh, season, haven't we? A winner on loop and uh, a very emotional win at Nokora um, Cursor just a, a few weeks ago. Uh, as you mentioned in the news roundup, Orla, uh, Lossie lost her uh, brother, who was a uh, SEP, who was only 29, uh, on the Sunday, which was you know just after um, Strada Bianchi. Um, uh, but uh, decided, made a late decision to uh, compete in uh, Nokora uh, Cursor and uh, won it. Now, Lizzie, before we were recording, um, you shared with us uh, a little bit about your your kind of experience with um, uh, grief uh, last year, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing it with us uh, on the podcast uh, again. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to in any way compare my experience to what Lotta must have been going through because every grief is different. And of course, you know, when you're losing your brother, it is going to be, you know, such a such a strong time of grieving. But I found out that, that our friend and colleague Richard Moore had passed away an hour before I was supposed to be meeting him at, at the race. And um, the team was amazing. They were so supportive said to you know do whatever you need to do um but the only thing the only thing I could do was race actually because because racing actually blocked out the pain and um I went on the attack and for those moments when all you can actually do is pedal hard it actually blocks out the pain momentarily so um you know there are also moments when 
the race is a bit quieter and then suddenly the grief just floods back to you. So uh, I can't imagine how Lotta Kopecky, Lotta Kopecky managed to do that, but I can also understand how um, it was the only thing that she felt she could do in light of the circumstances. So yeah, as you said before, all are just ascending, uh, sending all of our thoughts to her and her family and um, it was a sensational win. I mean, firstly, Lizzie, thank you for sharing that experience. That's an, I knew that had been the situation with you, but it's really hard to imagine what you're going through in the middle of a race whenever that's happening. Um, I find that, I mean, I spoke to Laura Kenny, um, the track rider, of course, who suffered a miscarriage while she was presenting on air with me at um, the Track Champions League last year. And she had said that afterwards, getting on her bike was her only option. It was the only solace that she could find. And also, I guess, is that familiarity to it as well. And it's, I guess it's why sport and exercise are so powerful in, for anyone who's suffered depression or um, any huge grief or, or disturbance in life because sometimes just moving your body and, do, and letting your body take over is a way of being able to still your mind in some way. Um, but, 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 none of that is to even explain how on earth Lotta was able to do that. And um, I'm just in awe. I'm absolutely in awe of her for being able to take to the start line, for being able to race. I'm quite sure she was pushing through so much because of her brother. And... I just think it's the most incredible, incredible tribute. Um, even if she'd not won, you know, just just being there anyway would be a tribute to your brother. I guess anyone who survives a death of a loved one becomes that living tribute to them anyway. You know, it's not to say if she hadn't won, it wouldn't have been a tribute because that's ridiculous. But um, just full credit to her, full credit to her. And I hope that um, I just wish her and the family, as we said earlier, all of our love in processing the next couple of months and the next year and, and the time ahead because it's it's something that stays with you forever. But yeah, an, an incredible win for so many reasons by Lotta Kobecki, incredible. And of course, her, her brother was her inspiration. I mean, he was the one that, that inspired her to get on a bike. Uh, I mean, he was the one <clears throat> that was that initial spark that that has created the Lotte Kopecky that we're, we're seeing this season who, who is just a phenomenal bike rider and we can, looking into the, the future, we can only see uh more wins and um more successes successes for her this is lionel interrupting the cycling podcast feminine very briefly to tell you about the pursuit of progression campaign from our friends at map now map are our clothing partners and the creators of the cycling podcast brilliant jersey and accessories the jersey, socks, caps and water bottle are all available on MAPCC now. And MAP have been inspiring people to set their cycling goals for 2023. And we've been asking our listeners what ride they would like to do this season. And from the many emails that have come in, three have caught my eye this week. One is from Christopher Stewart Leach, who, inspired by our Tour de Cost series to ride to all of the Scottish football grounds, is going to do the same riding to the 20 Premier League grounds in England. That's 700 miles in seven days. Now, Chris is an Arsenal supporter, so presumably this ride has Daniel's blessing. Just sad for me that there'll be no stop at Watford, or even not Watford this year, because Watford are not currently in the Premier League. Philip Drabiak has a ride that also really appeals to me, being a 
nostalgist for the 1980s, he plans to ride the route for the opening stage of the 1987 Tour de France, which started and finished in Berlin. So presumably this ride also has Daniel's blessing. Now it's 105 kilometres and Philip reckons there might be quite a lot of traffic lights in the city that slow his progress, but he's looking forward to it nonetheless. He says he got the idea when he popped into a bookshop and opened a book on the Tour de France and saw a photo of that stage taken about 200 metres from where he was living at the time. For history buffs, that stage was won by the Dutch rider Nico Verhoeven. And finally, Lisa Jane McIlveen, who writes to say that she only started to cycle properly in 2022 with the Women on Wheels programme which was being promoted by Cycling Ireland and hosted by one of the clubs near her, Ard Cycling Club. She built up her confidence and fitness between May and September and started joining the club on their weekend club runs. She cycled her first 100 kilometres in November and raised about £700 for charity in the process. And her goal in 2023 is to step that up and be fit enough to join the club on their annual cycling trip to Mallorca in October. She says she's always wanted to go because the roads and the routes look amazing but she's going to have to cycle a bit more consistently each week and try to cycle on consecutive days. So she's going to be upping her riding over the course of the year and with the riding in Mallorca meaning at least five out of the seven days on the bike, she can have to do a bit more than the current Saturday-only cycling, she says. Well, I'm sure that that will be a fantastic reward at the end of the season. Some early autumn sunshine in beautiful Mallorca is enough motivation for the year. But fantastic. Chris, Philip and Lisa Jane, best of luck with your goals. Uh, if you would like to tell us about your pursuit of progression goal for 2023, email us contact at thecyclingpodcast.com and if you want to buy the cycling podcast jersey so you look the business on the bike go to map.cc now we haven't spoken too much about uh trofeo binder uh which obviously saw a huge win for shirin van anroy the first her first win on the road um and we obviously spoke to shirin uh last month uh you spoke to her all uh, um a big chunky interview and, and she she wasn't giving me the impression that she was going to go for it uh in binder uh, at all that she was kind of expected to be in more of an, a supporting role but what does that say for you know her abilities and her strengths that, that's what she thought as well wasn't it i mean after well, the, end, yeah, the yeah. interview she said i wasn't expecting to win this i was here to support elisa balsamo <laughs> uh, do you know what? i loved uh, balsamo's delight at the finish line she was genuinely thrilled for her teammate it says so much about sharon van Anroy and you know the feel that she was able to win over the, her first women's world tour win coming off the back of huge successes last year and straight into cycling across and full, full, full credit as well to that team management because you mentioned it last episode. I mentioned it at the top of the show, but they forced her to take that break. She didn't want to take so long off the bike. You know, she wanted to be back earlier in the season, um, but they they insisted that she take a proper break away from cycling, go on holiday, and that she would have plenty more races through the year to enjoy. That's so healthy for a young rider, especially. It's healthy for any rider, but it also means that she's much more likely to be able to keep her mental focus and her hunger and her appetite for longer through the season because, you know, it was such a big year for her last year. And then the World Cyclocross under 23 um, winning on home soil was was a huge deal. When she had so much pressure as well. So much pressure, you know, and because she'd dropped essentially down from the elite level to the under 23 she kind of had to win that one um and so 
I think sometimes as humans, we're really guilty of underplaying the the exhausting, draining factor of emotions and spikes and dips in adrenaline and not recovering from that as well as we recover from physical or illness or whatever it might be. You really need to be able to switch off from something that you care very much about to keep caring about it. And I just think that was so mature of the team, as you would expect, I guess, they've been there, done that. But also just that great that Sharon is able to trust the management and the race direction enough that she didn't question it or didn't seem to question it, that she believes they have her best interests at heart, you know, because that really, really matters when it comes to your approach to a race and the fact that it panned out in her favour without any drama, you know, without any conflict between her and Elisa. It just speaks for such potential success from within that team once again, but certainly Sharon going forward. She's just a, she's just a little superstar. I just love her. I just love her attitude um, and the way the that thing, she rides in races. Was- the thing, sorry, Ola, the thing that was really impressive about her performance was that for the whole of the televised part of the race, which was an hour and last hour and 30, 40 minutes, every single move, every single move bar one, which was slightly less dangerous, she was in it. Uh-huh. And it was an incredibly attacking race. There was always people coming and going. And she was always there, right at the front. She was also working to bring back breaks, yet she still found herself in the winning move. And she was right at the front on all of the time. She had that really explosive power, which she obviously had from the cyclocross, but also this depth of endurance. Um, and, you know, these power climbs up there with the absolute best. And, and Nivea Doma tried to attack one of the times up the, the kind of the, the longer climb. And she just, she couldn't even get an inch on an, on Van Anroy's. Her performance throughout the race was incredibly impressive. She didn't wait and wait and wait and then just do her one move. She was always there working and yet she was still the best rider and nobody could touch her. So absolute kudos to her. It's really, really exciting. She's been exciting to watch for the last few years now. The amount of work that she did last year for Trek Segafredo, um, it's so great to see that paying off with her actually getting to win the races this year. And of course, they didn't have, you know, their home rider, Elisa Longo Borghini there, who was out because unfortunately she'd come down with COVID just before Stradabianco. So they actually had an almost weakened team um, there. Yeah, yeah. Van Enroy still pulled it off. So props to her I know seeing so much strength from uh, Van Anroy and as you said Orla I mean it, it, I mean, it was a t- team effort seeing Guy Riolini um, earlier on kind of weakening the legs of, of everyone else in the team we can expect a lot from Trek Segafredo uh, particularly going into this uh, classic season um, and uh, I know for all of us the classic season has a really special um, part in our, our hearts uh, and uh, particularly um as we've already mentioned, we're coming round now to the anniversary um, of the death of Richard Moore, our friend, um, most importantly, also our, our colleague. Um, and for me, thinking on the classics season, I mean, this this was a time of the year that he absolutely loved. And one of my greatest memories of being at any race was being at, at the Tour of Flanders with you, Orla, and with Richard and uh, just being able to get through it. I mean, he, he, it's just in Richard's nature to have thrown himself into everything and uh, just be so immersed um, in in those moments that we had together um, at Flanders, at the racing, just enjoying the whole experience, you know, not not taking, not being there and taking it as a job, but being there and and just enjoying the sights, the sounds, um, the food, of course. Um, I mean, it was just... Uh, so uh, special, I know for you all, uh, um, 
you know, the rate, being at races is kind of so intertwined with, with being being with Richard and enjoying his company. Hugely. And, you know, he just he just made everything better, didn't he? He made it more important as well as more fun. Anytime I was at a bike race with Richard, it felt like we were at the centre of the world, really. And he made it the centre of the world. Um, I've got Ghent Vevelgam coming up and, and I went, did a little road trip from London. Funny both lived there and drove overnight and went over to uh, watch Ghent Vevelgam together and report on that in one of Anne van der Brugge's, um phenomenal years and as you say Flanders as well um, so this time of year is really special anyway and of course Genvevelgen was the last race that Richard went to last year um, and I was reflecting on this recently because he's he's probably with all of us he's certainly with me every single day um, but coming up to his anniversary I've just been reflecting so much on um, what he did with the Cycling Podcast Femina um, and I said this after he died, but I want him to be remembered as such a trailblazer in women's cycling because he was. And I think that we started this podcast in my back garden in Beckenham, a little wooden Ikea bench, um, not knowing if anyone would listen or care when there was nothing like it at the time. And, and looking at the scene that we have now in women's racing, which is so full and dynamic and beautiful and wonderful. Um, and I really feel so much of that is thanks to him. And I want to thank everyone who's come along with us on that journey and everyone who stayed with us in the last year because we get your tweets and your messages and we know that he's left a massive hole in a lot of people's hearts. And people are a bit almost bemused by that and bewildered by it. But I understand it completely because his voice was such a part of the tapestry of people's lives. But I want to thank people for continuing to give us that support and for acknowledging what we're trying to do in his name and also what we're trying to do with women's cycling. Um, because he is in every single episode, he's weaved into every single episode that we do. And he's with me at every single race and on every single day. Um, so it's going to be really hard to watch Gen Fevelgem and the Tour of Flanders in particular but only because, do you know what? We get to, we get to, and that's brilliant. And whatever happens in these races, it's just going to be, they're just wonderful races anyway. Um, and so I hope we just celebrate that as well. We celebrate that we get to watch brilliant bike racing um, that we all love so much and be, and be grateful of that and the escape that it gives all of us in our lives. Um, but yeah, we miss him every day. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.